This is womensleadershipsuccess.com radio, episode number 14, Secrets of a Fanatic, How to Get Promoted in Your Career. Melanie Hobson, president of the Ariel Fund, talks about her career at Ariel. She started as an intern and became the president. She'll share her tips for getting promoted and some great ideas for you and your children to become financially independent. Welcome to Women's Leadership Podcast, showing you how to influence people, improve your performance, and advance your career. Brought to you by women's leadership and career expert Sabrina Brom and womensleadershipsuccess.com. Here's your chance to meet women trendsetters leading the way to success, accomplishment, and balance in business and life. No matter if you're a manager, CEO, or entrepreneur, join Sabrina for coaching and no-nonsense advice to improve your career and bottom line. This is Sabrina Brom with womensleadershipsuccess.com, and today I'm pleased to have Melody Hobson with Ariel Capital Management on the line, and she is one of the highest-ranking women in the mutual fund industry and one of the most powerful African-American women in the financial world. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, your career has developed in some interesting ways. Can you tell us some of your background? Well, I've been at Ariel my entire career. I actually started working at the firm as an intern between my sophomore and junior year at Princeton, and then I came and joined the firm after I graduated from college, and I've been here for 17 years. Supposedly, in my graduating class out of 1,100 people, I'm the only person who's had the same job with the same phone number since I graduated from college. Wow. When I came in here really working in the client services and marketing area of a fledgling investment management firm and mutual fund company, and through a lot of hard work and a great group of people and I think a really terrific investment philosophy, we were able to grow the business, and I became president in May of 2000. So it's dreams are possible. I went from intern to president, and I've been in that role really running the day-to-day aspects of the firm since then. My business partner and the founder of our firm, John Rogers, um, runs the investment portfolio. You, um, What would you say would be the things that women need to do to keep getting promoted in a job? You know, I think the basics are what matters, and it's like – Mom and apple pie are the things that I'm going to say. They're not gee whiz, but I really do think hard work pays off. I know that my career has been a testament to that. You know, basically what I tell people, one of my um, advantages I have is I can outwork anyone. And oh, you give up a lot in, in return for that, you know, in exchange for the hard work. It means that I work on weekends every Saturday and Sunday that I'm in Chicago, and we work, you know, early in the morning and late at night. But if you love it, it's not work. You know, I can't imagine that baseball players feel like they're working. I think they do and are playing the game that they love. And they feel fortunate that they can do that, and that's how I've tried to think of my job. So the work ethic has been very important. I do think it's important to do something you really like. I don't think you can be successful in a job where you just don't like the job. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, it doesn't matter what it pays. It doesn't matter what kind of status you're going to get from it. Longer term, you just can't succeed. 
And I've seen a lot of people go into certain jobs and businesses because they think the profile or the paycheck or what matters when ultimately is can you be happy doing it every day. I think it comes across to your customers. I think it comes across to your coworkers. And I think it comes across to those people who you need in order to be successful. And so I've always been a believer, even at Ariel, I joke with our team, even when it's hard, even when I feel that it's impossible, even when the stock market drops 300 points in a day, there's nowhere I'd rather be. That's cool. I remember hearing you talk, and you were talking about you gave up living a life of obligation. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, a few years ago, I just felt um, landlocked, for lack of a better word. And what I mean by that is that that I just I couldn't – there was no ability. I had no ability to just do things because I had – you know, just this really rigid schedule and really rigid life. And I was doing all the things that I thought I was supposed to be doing and mostly doing them to please other people. And while I do think that that's important, you want to serve others, I also think that if you're doing it and it becomes begrudging, that that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And so I've tried to you know, really push myself not to live a life of obligation. And what I mean by that is, yes, we have obligations. I'm not dismissing that in any way. But when those obligations take over your life and you feel like you're imprisoned by them, again, you can't be successful. You ultimately become bitter. Mm-hmm. And so instead, I decided that I was going to do the things I really, really wanted to do. And ultimately, if I did that, I'd be really good at those things. And ultimately, it'd be better for those people I was trying to do the things for or for me. Uh-huh. And so instead of just... Um, feeling this, you know, complete sense of obligation all the time where, you know, you're just, you feel trapped. I tried to take it in a different direction. And a good example of that, my assumption is that parents are incredibly obligated to their children. I don't have a child, but that's my expectation. But I think they do it out of such joy and love and even, again, when it's bad, it's good, versus, you know, soccer practice, this, that, or the other, where they feel begrudging about it. Right. And so that's what I'm saying, the difference, to get the joy out of the out of the opportunity or the experience as opposed to feeling like you're just checking a box, doing right. one more thing. And And the... Do you think that has something to do with managing stress, too? Well, you know, I think people manage stress in different ways. And um, I think, you know, for me, I manage stress by working out or by going to a movie or doing some things where I can just literally dial down in a pretty dramatic way. I think other people do it by cooking or baking or being with their kids or playing sports. Or So I don't think there's a one way of managing stress. The one thing I do know is everyone has stress. And so just to acknowledge that and not to feel badly about something that's just a fact of life. And then ask yourself, you know, how do I deal with it? And I think, you know, a lot of us, when we're all stressed out, we feel like shame on us. You know, why are we stressed out? And now I'm saying to myself, okay, I'm stressed out. How do I calm myself right now? And sometimes it's just (laughs) taking a moment and sitting down and looking out the window. Um, But, you know, that's the bigger issue because the stress doesn't go away. Well, you, you have a reputation for being patient. Is that true? Are you a patient person? Well, I think it's been evidenced by my tenure at my job. You know, <laughs> the average American has 11 jobs in their lifetime. I'm 38 years old. I've only had one. So I think that that's been a function of patience. And I also, you know, I can look far out 
into the future. And when I think about things, I think about what will be this like this be like in 20 years, in 30 years. Where will I be in this picture? And it doesn't. Everything doesn't have to happen today for me. I can wait. I was thinking about this that this morning I was um, getting up and I swim in the morning and I was going to the pool and I was thinking about you know like like your dream apartment kind of scenario uh-huh. and I was just saying to myself well, one day I'll have that apartment I have no idea when but the idea that it won't come is not something that I accept but it doesn't you know I might be sixty years old uh-huh. and the idea of waiting for it and fantasizing about it and and having high hopes and being optimistic is good enough for me. That's great. What What's the biggest obstacle that you've had to overcome, and how did you do that? I think my bis- biggest obstacle has been, um, there have been a few. I mean, I, I grew up the youngest of six kids, and we grew up in a, a very, um, uh, my mother was a really hard-working single mom who had six kids, mm-hmm. which, you know, says it all. One, very hard, very hard to, to make it all work and to financially provide, and that left a mark. You know, it made me, I think, I went into the financial services industry because of the financial insecurity that I felt as a child. And it doesn't mean that, you know, sometimes we had money and sometimes we didn't. Mm-hmm. And most of the times we didn't, no one knew but me because I was desperately embarrassed about it uh-huh. and just didn't want anyone to know. And so I just, I just, you know, did a lot to try to keep it from being obvious when I'm sure it was probably obvious. And, um, and you know, so that was one of the things I had to sort of get beyond that. I, I also think that... Um, you know, I've had a number of obstacles in business. We've had really difficult performance periods. All managers who invest in the stock market go through them. And the unfortunate thing about our business, people throw money at you when you're doing well, and they take it all away when you're not doing well and when it should be just the opposite. They should be giving you the money on your bottom and taking it away when you're at your top uh-huh. because that's how you make money over time. Now, the ideally, we have a turtle as a logo, they'd be giving you money and leaving it with you. But certainly the worst thing that you can do is buy on the high and sell on the low. And so as a result of that, you know, business goes through ups and downs. Those are extraordinarily difficult periods. We've just come out of one, hopefully. I feel like we've turned a corner. And, um, you know, you spend a lot of time running around the country trying to convince people to wait. Uh-huh. And to be patient and to try to underscore your passion for the business or that you're good at what you do or that you're learning to be better every single day. And I can tell you it's not an easy, an easy task. And at times, you know, what I found is that you get attached. You know, you have the client that you become attached to. And when they tell you they're going to let you go, I mean, it's like someone at times I've been felt like I've, you know, as a boyfriend breaking up with me <laughs> where you need, you know, a couple days to mourn the loss of the relationship. Right. And it sounds like I'm being very dramatic, but maybe it's because I live, eat, and sleep this business that, you know, I feel so strongly about these things that it's not just another client for me. Right. I've had, we had a, a board retreat this weekend, and one of our teammates talked about the fact that we, you know, we take things too personally. And I joked with him. I said, you know, the, I, I think I want to work with someone who's, who's passionate and maybe takes a few things too personally because I certainly don't want to work with someone who's indifferent. Right. So, but, you know, I, I have lessons to learn around this, and I have maybe ways of moderating my emotion on it that I just haven't learned to do yet, but I'm working on it. Well, that's that's great. And that, 
when I looked at your website, I noticed that, that you guys sponsor a school in Chicago. Yes. And um, one of the things that really impressed me about it was the investment program that you run the kids through. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. And let me just tell you that I'm, I'm so excited, uh, uh, women learning more about finances, but how do we, how do we get our kids where they start really young? And um, so I'd like to hear what, what you did there and how that's working out. Well, I think it's extraordinarily important to understand that socializing our kids to topics related to money investing is very, very key to their long-term financial security. And you can start at very young ages and start modeling behavior that will stick. You know, and, and that can be everything from one of the things that concerns me about our society right now, we're a cashless society in many ways. Mm-hmm. And kids only see their parents, some kids, use credit cards. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of moms and dads say to me that when they tell their child they can't have something, they'll say, put it on a credit card as if oh it's not gosh. real money. And so, you know, having conversations about those things, I think we want our kids to have better lives than us, Mm -hmm. and that includes them not having to deal with some of the things that caused us pain and anguish. Mm -hmm. And I think we sometimes do that. Now, I I speak not as a parent, so I understand I might be open to some criticism here, Mm -hmm. but I do think that what I've seen is at time in 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 an effort to make sure our kids have a better life, sometimes we insulate them from some of the realities of life, like not being able to afford certain things. And as a result of that, it leaves our kids with some false sense, um, false senses. And so being very direct about some of these conversations, I think, is very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, I think, you know, you can start with kids. Kids can, can start to think of money like sports where mm-hmm. there's a score, and they can, I've heard such wonderful ideas of how people get their kids engaged in saving and saving investing. Jonathan Clemens, who's a writer for the Wall Street Journal, he gave a story about how he talked to his kids about money, and he said that when they were really little and they went to a restaurant, he would say, you can have uh, a soda or drink water and I'll give you a dollar. And he said, my kids drink a lot of water. And I thought it was brilliant that's that he was making story. them choose. And in some ways, that's barter. You know, you're sort of starting off a conversation. I love the idea of families having sort of family 401k plans where maybe the child gets an allowance and for every dollar that child may save, the parent matches at a dollar. And that gets them closer to the Xbox that they want or the PlayStation that they want. I love the idea of parents giving parents giving kids allowances and dividing the money up so that there's long-term money, short-term money, perhaps even money for charity. So Mm -hmm. kids start to compartmentalize how they think about money. And I also love the idea of parents giving their kids stocks as gifts. Ariel was basically founded on that idea because our president, I mean our chairman and chief investment officer, I'm the president, chairman and chief investment officer, John Rogers, Mm -hmm. his father gave him stocks every birthday and every Christmas starting when he was 12 years old instead of toys. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately led to his not only stocks being a hobby, but ultimately being an obsession that became our company. And so the idea that you can create a portfolio manager by buying them some shares of Disney at Christmas or or uh, Sony if they like the Sony um, video games or whatever it might be, it's just a wonderful idea. That's truly the gift that keeps giving. So back to the school, you you give the kids 
$20,000 to invest when they're in kindergarten? Is yes, that we start in first grade. We give every first grade class $20,000 to invest. And they, that money follows them through their grade school career, but they take over increasing responsibilities for managing the money. So how do they learn how to do that? What do you do? They have, we have an investment curriculum as a part of their ongoing everyday schoolwork. Wow. And so in first grade, they learn barter. Are you willing, willing to trade Barbie for um, Pokemon cards or whatever the hot thing might be? Okay. And as they get older, they, they learn more sophisticated economic terms. So everything from supply and demand to service versus product. And then they get more and more sophisticated learning things like PE ratios or how to look up stocks on the computer. And they just, it, it becomes, they become socialized to this topic. And then once they start, they're in the driver's seat in sixth grade, they'd start managing a portion of the portfolio, seventh grade, a bigger portion, eighth grade, a bigger portion. They really see, you know, all of the, the gut check moments and all of the disappointments, but at the same time, they get this long-term perspective because they started as a first grader. Wow. What an incredible program. That yeah. is really, really neat. Um, I, well, I could ask you another hour's worth just on kids and in investing. Is there anywhere how – can, how can a woman find some information on – investing her, for her own money and for her kids. Do you have any books or suggestions of what she might do to start? The only, the unfortunate thing is there aren't any great books on investing for kids that I have seen thus far. I don't want to say there aren't books out there, but no, no one book really stands out for me. In uh -huh. terms of really understanding investing, I think if you want to be the best, you learn from the best. The best investor, the greatest investor I think of all time is Warren Buffett, mm -hmm. who runs the company Berkshire Hathaway, just announced this week He's the richest man in the world, $62 billion in net worth. Well, Warren Buffett is a great investor, and there's a book that I love about Warren Buffett called The Making of an American Capitalist by Roger Lowenstein. Roger Lowenstein was a Wall Street Journal reporter, and it's a phenomenal read about not only the basics of investing, but how a great investor thinks in very simple terms. Warren Buffett is the person who said that you should be able to explain a stock idea to a six-year-old. And that's the idea that, you know, there's a simplicity to this business. It's not as complicated as people think. And when it does start to sound really complicated, then that is when you, you probably are outside of your your as Warren Buffett would call it, circle of competence or your comfort zone. And those are the rules we live by at Ariel. Wow, that's great. Um, just a, a couple more questions here. Uh, you have a reputation for recognizing talent. What are the qualities that you look for in people that you hire? Well, I've, I, you know, Warren Buffett asked the question, speaking of which, he's in his interview, supposedly, mm -hmm. I've never been interviewed by him, but he supposedly says, are you a fanatic? And fanatic might... might um, connote a negative term, but for me, I get that. It's, you know, are you passionate about whatever it is that you do? Mm -hmm. And how have you been able to demonstrate that passion? And, it, and that could be you're passionate about being a, a great guitar player, whatever it might be, but where have you demonstrated this passion or fanaticism in your life? Because to me, those are the people who will do whatever it takes. And I say that obviously with all ethical uh, considerations in mind, but that really will just push themselves in because they love it and want to be better. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're looking for competence. So you want people who are smart and thoughtful. Problem solvers. I mean, it amazes me the number of people who just can't get certain things done. It doesn't matter what school they went to. Mm -hmm. You know, just can you cross it off the list and move on to the next thing and not have to revisit constantly. 
And then for me, you know, I'm a big fan of people who care about other people. Mm-hmm. I like nice. You know, that's, I do. <laughs> nice goes a long way with me. And, you know, it's like I said to someone recently, there are firms where culturally you can be a world beater, but you're not nice. Uh-huh. You can't succeed at Ariel like that. Right. And, and I, I believe. I love your rule of no gossip. Right. People want to work. And that's something we all have to work on, trust me. Uh-huh. But, you know, our, our rule about gossip is you do not speak of someone something you have not said in front of them or would go and say directly to them. Uh-huh. And when you put that filter in that perspective, it changes your words. And it doesn't mean we're all perfect, but at least we have a goal. And as our coach here says, you know, you drift and you come back. But, you, you know, it's like planes flying from one place to another. The wind might drift them off course, but the pilot brings them back, and you be your own internal pilot to be able to, to know when you've gone off course there. But on this point about NICE, I remember I was in a session at a, for women leadership program, and they had the woman – um, CEO of Motorola Canada, whose name I can't remember, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And she was the only woman country president of Motorola at the time. Mm-hmm. That may have changed, and this was probably 10 years ago. And I asked her, I said, give me the one thing. I mean, if you had to boil your whole career down to one thing of why you su- what, what you need to do to succeed. And she said, smile a lot. And I was like, at first, I mean, my face must have given it away because she said, your face is shooting arrows at me. And I was like, smile a lot. That's the best you can do. And she looked at me and she said, you know, this is my experience. People want to work with people that they like. They want to work with people who are optimistic and fun and nice. They want those people on their team. There are people who are haters. And there are people who are, or as she said, energy takers. And there are people who are energy givers. You decide which one you want to be. And she said, just do a simple test for yourself. You're at work or at home. The phone rings. You see that caller ID. Think of the people where you're shrugging, dreading answer the phone, answering the phone. And think of those people where you're running to it. And, and do you think, which one do you want to be? And I was like, I want to be the one that people run to the phone, the one on my team. And when she said smile a lot, I just got it. It was a short way of saying be nice. Right. And And we recently – You you talk about being authentic, and you're talking about smiling from the inside out. Right. No, I'm not talking about fake. I'm talking about that's where your heart is. Right. That, you know, could you have a heart – and I know it sounds a little dopey. You know, could your heart be filled with joy and optimism? As opposed to, you know, you know the people who are glass half empty. Where you talk to them and there's just one, you know, as we like to say at Ariel, we've admired the problem long enough. (laughs) You know, so who are the people who come in who are the problem solvers, who figure it out, who's like, this might be the craziest thing you ever heard. Let's just, you know, what about this? You know, at least it's something. Right. So the smile a lot is, is not technically, it's just a representation and then, again, it sort of takes the conversation full circle. If you're not in a place where you can be happy, you've answered the question. You won't smile a lot. You won't be the person that people ask to be on their team. And you'll probably be the energy taker, not the energy giver, because you won't want to do it. Right. So what else can a woman do to gain recognition and visibility for her accomplishments? I think it's the most important thing you could do is do good work. You know, I, we have Charlie Trotter come and speak at our school, who's a world-class chef. And right. he told our kids, excellence is excellent. 
And he also told our kids, think of yourself as a brand. And it doesn't matter if you're a brand working at 7-Eleven or if you're a brand working at Charlie Trotter's world-class restaurant or a brand working at Ariel. How do you feel about your brand? How do you want to protect your brand? What do you want your brand to project? And it's not about what you tell people. It's what they see. And I think, you know, John Johnson, who's probably the greatest, was probably the greatest African-American entrepreneur of all time, who started Ebony and Jet Magazine, he said, you don't have to tell people how well you're doing. You're doing. If you are doing good work, people will know. And people who do good work, everyone wants you on their team. Very, very good. I just so much appreciate you taking oh, the time to talk to us. And this is uh, Sabrina Brom for Women's Leadership Success. Thank you again, Melanie, and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Okay. I recently returned from the Pink Conference in Los Angeles, California, and heard many top women's leaders speaking about what it takes to be successful, and was reminded in this time of economic uncertainty, the importance of doing things to not only protect your job, but to help you get promoted. And one of the things that I think is important to do is to really pay attention to what your company needs and wants and be sure that you're giving it to them. So many times we get involved in the day-to-day activities and we don't think long-term about the big picture and what's needed. So remember to score every day at work by paying attention to what your company wants and needs. I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for joining your host, Sabrina Brom, on another Women's Leadership Podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can email her at sabrina at sabrinabrahm.com. Since 1989, Sabrina and her team have helped hundreds of women managers, business leaders, and entrepreneurs with valuable trainings, articles, books, and executive coaching. For additional tips, interviews, and free access to Great Leaders Today mini-course, visit www.womensleadershipsuccess.com.